What happens when we decide to listen to our inner voice despite the fear we feel? Is it possible to find growth and transformation on the other side of fear? This time, I spoke with Duncan McLachlan, a resilience champion, a reinvention expert that believes in developing business from the inside out. I am Jose Antonio Morales, and you are listening to a Deconstructing Fear interview. There's many examples in my life that, that come to mind in terms of overcoming the fear or feel the fear and do it anyway. But I think the most prominent example for me was uh, in 1990 when I'm sitting in front of a doctor who's telling me that I have two years to live. And he's telling me I have two years to live because... I have uh, an HIV infection that has uh, really taken a toll on my immune system after five years. And I didn't, I didn't, I had a sense that I might be infected, but I, but I wasn't sure. And at the time there weren't any treatments. So once I had arrived at this, this moment of this interface with the doctor, of course, my first reaction was fear. That's our normal reaction. Uh, and I remember being kind of stunned, not totally surprised, but in this kind of space of being stunned, in the space of being fear. And, and then that lasted about 90 seconds. And then at the same time, I felt like it was surreal what I was experiencing. That, that this, I, I mean, I, I, I knew that I wasn't normal in terms of my health, energy levels and things like this, but I'm still going to the gym. I'm still, you know, I'm still active. I'm still, so there was part of me that also didn't quite believe it, but for sure there was fear. And the whole era at that time, there was so much fear, so much stigma. Um, we think about the context of, of COVID today and people are anxious about, about COVID. And there was tremendous fear uh, around HIV and AIDS because there was no cure. There still is no cure. There was no vaccine. Uh, there was tremendous stigma about the populations uh, of people who were getting infected at that time it was about gay men it was about um, iv drug users uh, people who were working in prostitution haitians um, and nobody really understood what was going on and what i knew was that people were dying all around me that um you know every week in the newspaper there was another death and friends of mine died and i was doing visits to hospitals and you know it was it was really uh, a trauma so there was initial fear i realized that i the doctor was saying to me 
that I needed to take this um, medication, which was really the only treatment that was available at the time. And I believe that that toxic drug was killing people faster than the HIV. So even as I'm in the office, I'm, then I'm starting to think, okay, I need to claim my life. Like this is not about my death sentence. This is about my life sentence. How do I work with this guy, this, this doctor who's telling me that, that I need to take this treatment? And it didn't feel to me like I could work with him. I didn't know what the path was going to be. It was like having this blank slate, this opportunity to figure something out, but I didn't know what the something was yet. And so in the end of that meeting with this doctor, I said, um, I don't think that we can continue to work together. So at that point, I was, I moved out of the initial fear. I think I was shaking a little when I left his office, but I was already starting to think, okay, now what? And the now what led me into a journey of discovery. I felt really alone. Uh, I didn't know anybody who was taking this path. I knew lots of people who were dying. Um, I, didn't, I didn't understand anything more than kind of mainstream medicine. And there was this idea that you, you know, with the virus, it was very much, you know, attack the virus, like try and kill the virus. And, and the, the, the treatment also attacked the entire immune system, not just the virus. And somehow in my head, I just, and not just in my head, I think, I think in my body, I felt like, well, how can that be? That's like civil war. That, that it just, I started moving into this, this place of, you know, maybe we can call it executive functioning or, you know, or executive function. But it was more, more trying to think in terms of logic. And for me, the logic was, I need to investigate. I need to learn ways in which I can boost my immune system instead of attacking myself, uh, which is kind of like, for me, was like civil war. I was gonna, I was gonna bombard um, my immune system, a little bit like the idea of chemotherapy, uh, with a, a very, at that time, very toxic drug. Um, and that was really the only thing available to me. And I felt like people were dying from it. So. It was overcoming that fear and then starting the journey. And the journey continued for uh, 14 years after that without taking any HIV treatment medication. Of course, there were many treatments, several generations. I think I joined around the fifth generation of drugs, which were much less toxic. This was in 2004, which were much less, less toxic and much more effective. And during that 14-year period, I was exploring uh, complementary therapies, holistic health, other ways of looking at health. Traditional Chinese medicine was, uh, 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 became a primary modality for me. And I essentially created this uh, health map 
this roadmap to health for myself. Uh, I found other people uh, to, to join me. Um, I, I helped to create a community, um, mostly because I wanted to learn from them. And uh, so I, I started um, teaching uh, holistic health and complementary complementary therapies. And, and I just had this curiosity and this kind of explorer mentality. And I think I discovered along the way that by, by, by stepping out of my fear zone, I could create, people say to me sometimes, well, you know, did, did you, were those things you would have done anyway? And I say, well, to some extent, yeah. Like I discovered yoga, which I still practice to this day. Um, I discovered meditation, which I still practice to this day. Different forms, you know, um, mindfulness. So there were things that I discovered that, that helped to promote health that move us out of a stress response and a fear response uh, that, I, that, I, that I lean into uh, today. Um, because COVID for me has kind of triggered some of that trauma and some of those memories from the 1990s uh, and beyond that I thought I had, that I thought I had really dealt with. Um, but there's roots there that uh, are, are still are still present for me. So I think to say to say more about the the fear and and what sort of the the thought behind the fear or what what it represented for me. It represented, it represented the hero's journey. It represented challenging authority because today, you know, we all have access to, uh, to you know, many of us have access to internet. Many of us can go online and, and look up uh, certain conditions or ailments. And I think there's been a lot of that with, you know, with, with COVID, but at the time, at, at least in the culture that I was in, which was Western culture in Canada, um, it was to, to, to sort of challenge a doctor was really challenging power and authority. Um, people looked to the doctor for the answer. And, you know, and I, in that, in that fateful meeting with the doctor, when I, when I, walked out of his office, I didn't have a doctor. And I wasn't able to find a family doctor for another year and a half. So I was really on my own. But that was to challenge authority, but it was also to, to state my right to determine my health for my body. And quite frankly, Nobody really knew the answers and the doctors, you could feel the fear. I could feel their, I mean, I fairly sensitive guy, but I could feel his fear. I could feel the fear of wanting to prescribe knowing they knew that this, the, the drugs were, were killing people, but there was, there was nothing else to offer. And when you're a doctor and you have a patient who's looking to you for the prescription, I had a good friend of mine and he had gotten the prescriptions. And actually there was a second, there was a second drug. Um, and he told me 
that he had gotten it, filled the prescription, and it was sitting in his medicine cabinet. And every day he'd open the medicine cabinet and say, I don't want to take this shit. And he closed the medicine cabinet and he wouldn't. And finally his doctor said, you know, what's up? Are you, you know, you taking, no, I haven't taken it yet. He said, well, you're, you're gonna, you know, you're gonna die. Like you've got six months, like this is serious. You've got six months. He started taking it and six months to the day he died. Six months to the day he died. So the, the, the fact of, of, uh, it wasn't it wasn't just a rebel response to challenge authority it was the assertion that i have a right to determine what is best for me that i have a right to choose differently that it's my body and even though i didn't understand you know i didn't understand about you know energy and somatic forms and all of the things that i discovered because i just you know, I just tried every, everything that I could, I could get access to, I tried. And some of it was out of pocket and sometimes it was offered, but essentially it was outside of the, Canada has a, a, a public healthcare system, but a lot of this, almost all of this, in fact, was outside of the healthcare system. So I was, you know, out of pocket as much as I could afford. And uh, it, it was, it was really about saying, I'm, I, I need to follow my own intuition. I need to follow my own sort of my own sense of what, of what makes sense. And what makes sense for me was to boost my immune system, not to take something that was going to attack it uh, and hopefully kill the virus uh, at the same time, but maybe kill me first. So it is some kind of, uh, so this transcending that fear or overcoming that fear was kind of an action of faith in you, right? Yes. Yeah, it was, it was an, an element of faith in me. And I have to say there was another fear beyond that because there was a doubting of self. And with with the exception of my partner at the time i mean my family thought that i was on a suicide mission you know i mean people because other people were making another choice and it looked what i was doing looked crazy but you're, you're freezing medication like you must want to die no i want to live but i had this doubt and especially in the first few months Uh, until I started meeting other people and until I went into uh, a program one day called Holistic Health 101 that was offered by a community uh, service organization and it was a weekend intensive and we were talking about psychoneuroimmunology and all of this stuff that was just brand new at the time. Uh, this was uh, 1990. Uh, Today, we understand a lot more about the mind-body connection, but 30 years ago, it was still kind of novel. So I, uh, I, 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 until I got connected to other people, other people who were making the same choice as me, other people who were interested even in looking at this differently, and certainly 
the gentleman who offered this uh, training uh, became a mentor. At the end of the training, he said, I think you would make a great facilitator. Would you consider it? And I said, I've never facilitated anything in my life before. Um, okay, um, I'll say yes. And, you know, we'll, we'll explore that. And, and I ended up facilitating it for two years, developed another, uh, a second layer, a more advanced course, and then took it into the realm of spirituality and, and looking at illness as, as a spiritual journey. So uh, it became, uh, and this all to collect and, and build community. Uh, because I really believe it takes a village. And even if it's, it's, it feels lonely, you know, at the outset, I think once we, once we make the choice, I think the universe provides for us and we can still have the fear. But as we go along, uh, as other people join us, we can share that fear and, and overcome it together. But I was actually thinking about this in the context of the pandemic and uh, remote working, working from home, uh, staying in shelter, uh, distributed working. I've been a big advocate of that. Uh, and uh, I've, I've looked to companies who have had this as part of their culture and part of their way of working. And it's, it's partly because part of my work is freelance. So I'm, 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 I'm more than sympathetic uh, and I do work from home myself. There's a lot of resistance. There's a lot of fear. Uh, and what I'm learning is that there is, there's a fear of the old sort of command and control model, which is, of course, that my people are only working if I can see them. Like if, if they're here, if they're around me, if I can walk into the room where they're supposed to be working and I can see them. And I, I feel, you know, and I feel like I'm, you know, in charge if, if, if they're with me, if they're not with me, I'm not so sure. Uh, it's a question of trust. So what I've noticed in some companies, and I'm, I'm speaking here from the French perspective, uh, is that there's a lot of resistance to working from home. There's a lot of fear of working from home. And what I've come to understand about that is that it's much more complicated. And part of it does have to do with a sense of team and community. And obviously we talk about things like the importance of social relationships. Social relationships are very important in French culture. Um, people make jokes about the amount of time spent uh, you know, getting coffee, um, you arrive at work at nine and you go for a coffee break at 10 and you say hello to everybody in the morning. And, you know, this it very much relationship based, uh, very different from other, from Anglo-Saxon cultures, very different from German cultures. Um, so the social relationships are very much a part of French culture. And so I think when we look at any culture and we talk about remote working, we have to remember that, you know, we, we may be part of a global community, but we're the global community consists of, you know, many different cultures and, um, and, and very different perception 
in in around this in Africa, much more, you know, community collectivity based. And what I've discovered though is that because I couldn't understand why there was so much resistance. And I thought, well, what could what could be because the unions tend to support people being in the office and people want to work from home and they don't want to commute and that's a risk for COVID and et cetera, et cetera. But what I discovered is that the real fear behind all of that is that more jobs will be outsourced. And when more jobs are outsourced, people could be employed from other places, contract work. I mean, this obviously exists already and, these companies will do some of that already. But the idea is that, or the fear is, sorry, that they will do a lot more of this once all of that remote culture is really, you know, put in place and people learn to trust it. Uh, well, then where, where are people paying, you know, taxes? You know, where are people contributing? The social security costs in France are really high. Uh, you get one of the best social security systems in the world, but we pay for it. And so the, 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 the fear is if we don't have people employed here in France, but working remotely, once you open that even further, uh, it's already open, obviously it's been open for, I mean, there are companies that do lots of remote working, but the idea is that you lose control, not just of your people, but of where your revenue um, for taxation, for support for social uh, security and everything else comes from. And that made me rethink uh, my own, well, it was really an answer to my curiosity and my question, why is there so much resistance to remote working here? So that's part of the answer. Um, as far as community goes, I think that what I've learned uh, in, in virtually every endeavor that I've ever done in my life that uh, there's, that I always, I, I'm, I'm a big diversity, equity, inclusion guy. It's a big part of my work. I've been doing this work for 25 years and, and I, I, I do the work because I'm compelled to. I, I, to me, it's just the normal way of working that we work together, that we're stronger because of our diversity. And that when we include those other voices, it's like, you know, we, we have a challenge together, you know, here. We want to shine the light on it from different angles that, you know, that you bring, that other people bring. And the more light that we can shine on something, the more likely we are to be able to see it properly or completely and the more likely we'll be able to be innovative with with the solution so however we define our community um, we're all part of an ecosystem and the the the, the way of looking at uh, the way biomimicry for example and, and 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 thinking about design from an ecosystem point of view is that there's we're all part we're all connected and we're all part of a community and we may as well leverage that uh, for our benefit so in my example with the story i started off alone but part of it was seeking out 
relationships with practitioners who could who were teachers for me along the journey. It was seeking out other people who were making this choice, but who were invisible. Uh, it was seeking out learning opportunities like the workshop that I mentioned. And so that creating the community, um, I'm very drawn to the South African, but it extends into other parts of Africa as well, this, this notion of Ubuntu, which is um, I am because we are. And so while it's a hero's journey, it's a hero's journey with a whole bunch of support around it. Uh, I'm talking about my own life. And I think that often we stay in fear and we stay in trauma, partly because we, we are in systems that do not support our journey. Right. What happens with these communities when they become illuminated, when they see more than they could see before? When, when they become illuminated, when they can see more than, than they can see before, I think we, that's where we have innovation. That's where we have creativity. That's where we have resourcefulness. That's where we have resilience. That's where we have regeneration. That's where we have collective responsibilities. What we can do is, is to build purpose and freedom and connection is, is, is limitless. I think, um, I, I think that definitely we have to leverage coming together. I think we definitely have to leverage uh, community building. I think that we have to think in terms of uh, ecosystems that that you know that that we we are all connected more than ever before and I'm not talking about the internet I'm talking about you know what happens uh, in uh, one part of the world impacts the other uh, what happens in one country impacts another uh, and the, the 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 reality of the interconnectedness of us is something that we really need a radical understanding of this now, not, not tomorrow, today, that, that, that I am because we are, that, that, you know, that, that the journey of, you know, that I carry with me, that we all carry with us our ancestors, and we need to be responding to what the world can be for our children. That we have to get out of a, this uh, uh, individualistic um, mindset. Uh, and that requires freedom comes from giving up something. I, in my, you know, in my work in Africa, I become more and more sensitized and, and certainly with Black Lives Matter and and uh, identifying and working on my, my own racism, but working in Africa and really realizing that um, I carry so much privilege, even with disabilities and hidden disabilities. I, I'm still a white man with a lot of privilege in the world, and I need to use that privilege uh, for good. And part of that means that I have to give something up. And I think that the idea that we can 
have what we have now, hold on to everything we have now, um, and change the world is false. I think that we, we, we all must uh, give up something in order to get, in order to create a different reality. And the clock is ticking. And I feel that we absolutely, one element of, of response to that question is that we absolutely have to start listening and responding to young people more. Uh, we need to be able to take more action on climate change. We need to seize the opportunity of the pandemic to address systemic racism and inequalities more. And it's not that it has to happen everywhere all at once, but the more that we do it, the more that we all sort of say, I'm in, let's go, um, the more momentum that will carry and the more change that will, uh, that will create. But the reality, I believe, is that none of us are free unless we're all free. And even though that is aspirational, of course, <laughs> idealistic, of course, when I was growing up, my mom would say, she'd shake her head and she'd say, oh, Duncan, you are, you are just, you're too idealistic. And, and she would say that to me because she thought that I was a dreamer. She thought that, you know, I was going to have it hard in the world if I had this idea that the world could be a better place. And now she's so proud of me because of, you know, the choices and the ways that I help other people. But let's dream and, and let's be aspirational, idealistic, and let's, let's take action. Um, and that is the way to freedom. That is the way to, to, to purpose and, and um, making the world a better place. And, and we, we absolutely have an imperative to do that now. What do you think we have to give up? What are you giving up? It's, it's, different. it's different for everybody. One of the things that I'm giving up is, is um, feeling like I need to say what's right. When I, when I have, what I have learned and discovered is that uh, in, in really going much deeper into privilege and, and particularly racism and, and inequality and understanding a different way, again, another different way of looking at the world, uh, is, is that I, I can't, I cannot hold on to a fear that people might not like what I have to say. And so what that looks like is that, that I take more risks. I'm doing it right now with you. I'm being much more emphatic than I used to be. Um, I really believe in the urgency of, of that. And I believe that we all have a we, we are all unique and we all have therefore a unique contribution to make it's not for me to say what your contribution is or or what someone else's contribution is but we are here to be the best version of us and so i need to be the best version of me and at this point the urgency is 
why wait? There is no time to wait. If, if I feel like there's an injustice, I've, I've always been motivated by wanting to make a positive difference. That, that people used to say 25 years ago, that was too vague, um, but it's been true. It's something that I've committed to my whole life. And, and so I wanna be about making the world a better place. And in order for me to do that, I need to call stuff the way that I see it from my perspective. Um, and some people will follow because, because I'm speaking their truth also. And other people might not. And that's okay. So part of it is, is, is taking a risk. And, and you know there are other projects that, that go along with this around resilience. And one of the things about resilience that I think is often missed is that resilience which I define as our adaptive capacity to change exists within systems. And those systems may be systems of oppression, may be systems of poverty, may be systems of racism. And it's not just enough, again, coming back to community, it's not just enough for, for me to make a change or for you to make a change. We all have to make a change. And part of the change we have to make is the collective change of systems so that everybody has the opportunity to recover from trauma, recover from fear, recover. For, I, I, I wrote something recently about in a challenge to, to an HBR article that I used to revere HBR, uh, Harvard Business Review. But the challenge was, look, you're talking about you know, this is, this is recovering from trauma, assuming that people have the possibility of returning to safety. If you are in trauma and in fear, if you're stuck in fear, you can't get to safety. You're still in the trauma because the system and the, the ecosystem around you does not support you in the way that it supports me. In fact, it's, keeping you uh, uh, consciously, it's, it's systematically keeping you uh, suppressed. So we, we have, there's no shortage of opportunities. I think, I think everybody needs to, you know, we just, we need to search our own consciousness. We need to listen to our heart. We need to, we need to act on, on, on what our intuition or and, and the opportunities are, are every day around us. Uh, and I, I think that, um, I, I think that, you know, and we, and we find other people, um, we, we, we join other causes, associations, um, movements, uh, communities, we create communities uh, and we support one another so that we can um, so that we can do what, what needs to be done to make the world a better place. For me, if, if, if there is no fear, if I have no fear, then I have confidence and courage and, and I'm not stuck in, in self-doubt or procrastination or, you know, um, or also another challenge is being overwhelmed with how much there is to do, right? 
we need to be able to practice self-care and self-compassion and 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 recognize that you know in you know the context of ongoing stress and uncertainty which is the reality for most of us that we may need to do more you know uh, every day ongoing to take care of ourselves and to take care of those around us and that that is is essential to being able to do it's like well-being for well-doing that's essential for being able to 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 make the changes in the world and i know from doing diversity equity and inclusion work that it's 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 there's super high rates of burnout for people doing that work because often it's the marginalized people who are doing the work and 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 it, it takes a toll and so i really lean on i have a, a, a lot to say about this because i spent i had the luxury of spending several years investigating what well-being and complementary um health modalities and and supplemental nutrition for stress and all sorts of things could could do to boost you know boost my immune system and we all need to boost our immune systems we all need to to boost our our ability to to be in this world of of uncertainty but you know when when i am you know grounded and i am in alignment and i am acting on my values which is the the thing that i try and do every day uh, when i'm in in that flow uh, there's no fear 